Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Dr. Duncan G. Stroik, Professor of Architecture at the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture, giving a talk entitled, Francis, Rebuild My Church, The Franciscan Tradition of Sacred Architecture, sponsored by the Department of Theology and the Department of Fine Arts at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I want to thank John Bergsma for that uh, kind welcome, and uh, it's been a great day at uh, um, Franciscan, and uh, met a lot of you uh, uh, wonderful faculty, and uh, love your school and um, the, uh, I think it's fair to say there's been great progress on the campus architecture here in the last 15 years. So we want to thank um, the Father Presidents who've done that and uh, Joe McGurn who's here and the architects who are here for all their hard work in uh, uh, beautifying the campus and even renovating some buildings. And um, since this is a Franciscan school, I don't want to be a preacher. Um, it's a joke. Um, so, um, but at any rate, it's, it's a great honor to be here. And uh, I must say, I meet uh, graduates of Franciscan all over the country. Um, they're usually very rich. And... Um, Uh, and they're ser serious, uh, serious men and women um, who take their work seriously and take the church seriously, and I'm sure you all will after you finish your four-year retreat. <laughs> <coughs> I actually hate microphones. I think they're a Protestant invention and we should get rid of them. <laughs> any rate, um, it's great to see you all here, and uh, we're here to talk about uh, Franciscan architecture. Is there a Franciscan architecture? And of course, the title was said by some saint. I don't remember who said that, go build my church. Or it was said to a saint, sorry. Um, so I'd like to talk about that. So uh, a, a number of firsts, uh, the first Jesuit pope and the first Bishop of Rome to take the name of Francis. Uh, of course, those of you in this audience know that that's not very surprising, since St. Ignatius himself uh, saw himself as an imitator of Francis and Dominic, and he would say, what would Francis do, what would Dominic do if they would do that, then I should do that. So it's a very exciting time in the church, and uh, to have a Franciscan, I mean a Jesuit uh, Pope, <laughs> Um, with the name of Francis, and I think that's how I'd like to lead into this um, talk. Now, so what is Franciscan architecture? Um, I would say that these images right here are what many people call to mind when they think Franciscan architecture. Why? It should be embellished, unembellished, it should be abstract, and most importantly, it should be iconoclastic. It should be poor looking, perhaps machine-like and functional. It should be very casual, maybe with beanbag chairs. That <laughs> is much more welcoming to the youth of today. I ask you, is this really the future of Franciscan architecture? You're supposed to say something, come on. No. No. 
you probably don't know this image, right? Um, now, on the contrary, I would like to suggest that simple does not mean anti-traditional. And the incarnation would argue against a mechanistic and iconoclastic architecture. So what happens to the place where the Franciscan order is founded and it becomes a pilgrimage site? Suddenly there's a lot of people there. You embellish the chapel, which you'll do in about 30 years to your chapel. They embellish the chapel and they have to build uh, a place for all the pilgrims. These are both Franciscan architecture. So small is beautiful. Simple is beautiful, but what happens when you need to accommodate 10,000 pilgrims? It's a different world. I would like to suggest to you that there is not a Franciscan style. If you study the history of Franciscan architecture, you'll see, like the church, there's great variety and richness of styles employed. Oh, have you ever been there? Now, I have to admit, there are a number of these in this country and a number that have been built in the last couple of years, uh, decades, and of course, yours is the finest. And um, very worthy little chapel. I happen to have had a client once who wanted me to design one, um, and we had the honor of doing that, and uh, never happened, but I was honored to have to go to uh, St. Mary of the Angels and measure the existing Porziancola and we got special permission to photograph it because you know that if you take photographs of, of the chapel it might hurt it. And um, <laughs> that's what the Franciscans tell me at any rate. And, um, but it's interesting that so many have emulated this little chapel in recent years. Now uh, you know this story better than I, and I have to be very careful talking about uh, St. Francis and the Franciscan tradition in a place that eats, drinks, and sleeps um, the Poverello and the Franciscan charisms, but I'll remind you of a couple of things because it might help me to remember what I could tell you. So Bonaventure writes, one day when Francis went out to meditate in the fields, he was passing by the church of San Damiano, which was threatening to collapse because of extreme age. Inspired by the Spirit, he went inside to pray. Kneeling before an image of the crucified, he was filled with great fervor and consolation as he prayed. While his tear-filled eyes were gazing at the Lord's cross, he heard with his bodily ears a voice coming from the cross telling him three times, Francis, which, as you see, falling into ruin. Trembling with fear, Francis was amazed at the sound of this astonished voice since he was alone in the church. And as he received in his heart the power of divine words, he fell into a state of ecstasy. Returning finally to his senses, he prepared to put his whole heart into obeying the command he had received. He began zealously to repair the church materially, although the principal intention of the words referred to the church, which Christ had purchased with his blood as the Holy Spirit afterward made him realize. And as you know, St. Francis didn't rebuild just one church. He rebuilt at least three churches with his own hands. He physically got out there 
all you Franciscans, with his hands and physically uh, repaired these buildings. Uh, now, it's true that modern commentators like to emphasize that this was only symbolic of St. Francis's repairing of the spiritual church. But I would like to argue that it was not just symbolic. In fact, whenever there is growth in the church, new religious movements that attract people, what happens? There's property to buy, mouths to feed, and buildings to construct. Sounds like a university. In fact, the Franciscans have been some of the greatest builders and patrons of art and architecture in the history of the church. Do you believe that? The Franciscan order employed art and architecture to build the faith. They went to where the people were. And by founding new communities in towns and villages and building sacred architecture, the Franciscan charism grew. So the material is part of the spiritual in the Franciscan tradition. It's not opposed to it. Of course, you know this story too, the dream of Innocent III. And here we see the Lateran Basilica falling down, but being supported by an insignificant little man, Francis himself. And here the Pope recognized the saint's mission to support the Lateran Church. It's interesting that when you see through the history of the uh, church's patrimony of art, artists have always recognized the church, big C, as embodied by its building, small c. And in the dream, the pope sees the building. The pope sees the building. He sees Francis holding up the building. The material is part of the spiritual. And isn't this very appropriate in our faith, which is incarnational? Has anybody ever been here? Is there such a thing as Franciscan architecture? The process of Francis's canonization was not yet complete when negotiations got underway for the construction of a monumental church in his honor. This was encouraged by the Vatican, the Friars Minor and the city of Assisi, which aspired to be a place of pilgrimage. This was a very noble goal for a city. Pope Gregory IX, who loved Francis when he was alive and canonized him, helped support fundraising and laid the first stone himself. This is interesting. You probably know this being uh, good Franciscans here, but I'd like to remind you that the orientation of San Francesco in Assisi is very Roman. You say, it doesn't look Roman to me at all, Duncan. That looks very Assisi. Well, it's, very, it's also very Roman. Let me tell you why. It is oriented backwards, like St. Peter's and St. John Lateran. That is, the altar is in the west. Uh, there is its cruciform, like those two buildings. And there is a freestanding altar over the tomb of the founder, and behind it, a papal throne. Sound familiar? Very Roman. Now, the facade is simple, reminiscent of the Cathedral of Assisi. Did you notice that when you went there? And the tradition of Romanesque churches in the region. 
So we have the universal Rome and we have the particular Umbria. And of course, in particular, the rose window, which is surrounded by the symbols of the evangelists and the animal figures. Now, I, I believe that there are major principles of sacred architecture that we can find across the centuries, continents, types of buildings. And Franciscan architecture has over its history consistently reflected those principles. However, there are specific charisms of Franciscanism that were either innovated by the Franciscans or were adopted and promoted by them. These principles have made their mark on Franciscan buildings and not surprisingly have been adopted by others as part of mainstream Catholic art and architecture. So the first principle is that Franciscan architecture is evangelistic. And we see here uh, the great San Bernardino preaching in his town of uh, Siena uh, in public. And of course the mendicants were famous for their preaching and the crowds were sometimes so big they had to preach outside, uh, which is what I think you should do for your Easter mass. when the crowds are too big. Um, and um, uh, up on a raised pulpit, temporary pulpit, and you see his image of the uh, holy name of Jesus, what the Italians call the, the image of San Bernardino. Now in Italy, particularly, the Franciscans carved out piazze for preaching and accommodation. Also places for lay burial and they saw the churches as cemeteries. The friars focused on the conversion of heretics, which fortunately we don't have today, so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> now, what's interesting too about this side, this lower piazza of San Francesco, um, is it is a great piazza for preaching, for gathering, uh, for talking to heretics, but look at those arcades. What else are the arcades nice for? You're a pilgrim visiting here, walking here a long way. And you need, what? Yeah, shelter. You need a place to stay tonight. There's no hotels, there's no room in the inn. And so there's also, uh, the arcades also have the function of being providing shelter in bad weather, sleeping there, eating there, and so on. So it's a place um, uh, for the people to evangelize. Uh, of course, the Franciscans were great missionaries to the four corners of the world. And they built these great evangelistic churches with bell towers and monumental facades. Um, I particularly like this one of San Francisco in Quito because uh, is this Franciscan architecture that you think of? Probably not. We Americani don't think this, but they built a lot of churches like this, guys, all south of here, a lot of churches. And uh, it's kind of simple. <laughs> um, in our country, um, the missions are really the poor cousins of the missions in New Spain. We think they're great stuff. They are. They're very nice. But they're really, they're really the poor cousins. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where there wasn't much money and spaces were distant and there weren't as many converts. But this is perhaps the most, uh, uh, what I would consider probably the fanciest and most elegant of the missions in Tucson. And of course, 
uh, as a good Franciscan church, it has a Jesuit name. Uh, but as you probably remember, the Jesuits and the Franciscans both were great uh, missionaries to the New World, uh, among other orders. And the Franciscans founded San Javier. Uh, later on, they were, um, uh, they were uh, suppressed. And in the interregnum, there was a need for a new church. And the Franciscans built it. And they very kindly kept the name of San Javier. Uh, beautiful. These missions. Um, are buildings that very much draw on the European tradition, particularly the, the uh, Spanish tradition. And though they sometimes had architects or priests who knew architecture to design them, they also employed a lot of uh, local uh, ability, local uh, details, local artist, artisans, and they, they trained the people in artistry. So again, we have the kind of the universal and the particular, the local. I like this idea of evangelization also, that the building evangelizes uh, to those who often won't enter a church, and there are, there are things about the exterior of it. This is a little Franciscan church that's on a side street, and you just get a glimpse of it. And what do you get a glimpse of? There's St. Francis hovering above the front door with his uh, receiving the, the stigmata. And I think that's a wonderful way that the architecture and the art can speak, even though it's down a side street and you can barely see it. So we've got to speak. We've got to uh, put the ideas out there. Um, the great church in Venice is the Frari. And um, these uh, medieval churches were not the first Franciscan churches. They're really the second ones, as the Franciscans did very well. The first churches were smaller. The second ones were big. Guess why? People had babies. No, the, the growth of the faith and the growth of uh, support of the Franciscans meant that they had to build bigger churches. And they were mendicants, so they weren't really uh, good. I mean, they weren't really fans of fundraising. Um, but they needed these big, simple buildings. This is kind of a basilica, like an ancient Roman basilica. You see the columns and the arches, and with a nave and two side aisles. And you can see that uh, in the plan, you can see all those wonderful side chapels. Well, those help pay for this building because individual families would like to be buried there and would like to have a chapel devoted to a particular saint, and they would pay for that, and that would help build these great churches. So one way to think about these early medieval Franciscan churches as large, simple buildings that were like canvases for the lay people to, to write upon, to do art upon, and they would hire different artists, and the Franciscans uh, supported that and, and allowed that. And I think that's what you have to understand. A lot of this is um, actually the Franciscans and the lay people, the lay benefactors helping to build. So this is another way of evangelization by getting us to uh, participate in these big, generous churches. Um, now at San Francesco, we see a building that on the inside seems more Gothic. Um, and more elegant than some of the earlier uh, buildings. But there's still a simplicity about the architecture. There's only one nave, only one nave. But what preaches day in and day out? The walls. The walls preach and they teach. And what's interesting about the Northern Gothic or the French Gothic is that one of the differences between Gothic and Romanesque 
is the Gothic is the birth of sculpture and in a certain way the death of painting but not so in Italy and not so at San Francesco because you have the combination of the Gothic and the rebirth of painting or the continuation. The Italians never gave it up uh, and we tell the story of St. Francis with these amazing paintings and we have lots of other imagery inside but the building preaches. Now the second principle uh, uh, Franciscan architecture is evangelistic. Uh, Franciscan architecture is an architecture of pilgrimage. And so the building itself is seen as a place that we go as pilgrims from far away or even if we live in town. So the piazza, the facade, the threshold, series of thresholds as we go on our journey and the building expresses that. And as we enter in the arcades, the colonnades, the side altars are all expressive of that journey. As we make our way towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Now of course you know that the one of the first pilgrimages was to the Holy Land. The early Christians venerated the places of where Christ walked, where he was born, where he lived, where he died, where he rose. And the, from early on, Francis had a great devotion to the Holy Land and a great interest in going there. And not long after, the Pope gave the custody of the Holy Land to the Franciscans. And again, this is a very Franciscan charism to want to walk where Christ walked. An architecture of pilgrimage. Now when we think about um, Emperor Constantine building a temple complex, and it was a much actually a much bigger and grander complex than what we have today, over the empty tomb. This should be connected, this should be seen by us as being connected to the way that the Franciscan, the Franciscans thought about architecture in Assisi and other places. That is, you build a building over the tomb. You commemorate an important event, even where he was baptized, even where he was born, you commemorate that. And this uh, begins with early Christian veneration of Christ and of the saints um, and gets new life with the Franciscans in the Holy Land and also in um, Assisi and other, and other places. Has anyone ever done the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem? Good. Um, Why do we do this? To relive, to participate in Christ's passion and death, to physically walk, to physically visit, and to pray in these holy spots. The Via Dolorosa is a symbol for so many Catholic devotions fostered by St. Francis and the Franciscans. He may not have invented it, but the Franciscans are rightly credited as the great promoters of the Via Dolorosa and the Stations of the Cross, which allows all of us 
to have a bit of Jerusalem where we are. Now the Sacramonte uh, di Varallo in northern Italy is an interesting expression of this. Guess what kind of priest founded this? Jesuit? Dominican? Augustinian? The Sacramonte di Varallo is a new holy land founded by Father Bernardino Caimi, who was a Franciscan, and he had been the rector of the Palestinian holy places and also an ambassador to the Spanish court. Caimi tried to recreate, quote, the holy sites so that those who could not go on a pilgrimage might see Jerusalem. The Sacramonte Varallo comprises the minor basilica. Can you see it? That basilica and 45 chapels. How many do you have on campus? 45 chapels. Either isolated or inserted into the large monumental complexes that dramatically illustrate the life, passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's an amazing place. Uh, we went there two years ago and even my kids liked it. <clears throat> and in these 45 chapels, uh, they narrate the events of Christ's life inside and around the walls of Jerusalem. And you see the Last Supper, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the Assumption of the Madonna, to which the Basilica is dedicated. So you can see how Chaimi did it. These are chapels of prayer where there are statues, where there are painted reconstructions of these events. And you go to each chapel and you look in a window. You, you look in and you see the event. You're not you're not physically in the room with the event, but you're looking in on it. You're aware of it. And again, this is that Vatican, sorry, that is, this is that Franciscan charism of wanting to bring the Holy Land here, but also walking in the footsteps of Christ and the saints. And of course, we have our own uh, little uh, taste of the Holy Land at the uh, Franciscan Monastery in Washington, D.C. Now, this, the, the seven great basilicas in Rome, isn't Rome the other great place of pilgrimage? To visit the tombs of Peter and Paul, the early martyrs and the saints. And you can see the great churches here, the seven uh, basilicas that in, at one time you were supposed to walk to each of them within 24 hours, which meant you had to walk at night. <coughs> And one of the great heroes of Rome is in the Renaissance is Sixtus V. And you guessed it, he was a Franciscan. Sixtus V built a lot in Rome. And he was a great urban designer, urban builder, developer. And starting, uh, and he was a true Pontifex Maximus, building bridges, restoring churches, and accommodating the pilgrims who flocked there. They even provided early ATM machines. <laughs> but Sixtus V, a Franciscan during the Counter-Reformation, worked to make Rome another Jerusalem and sought to connect the major sites with obelisks and straight streets. That is, uh, Rome was kind of a medieval city with um, early Christian buildings, ancient Roman 
elements, uh, monuments, and then Renaissance buildings. But what he did is he would carve out streets so that you could walk from one place to another. And you see St. Peter's here, you see the northern gate, Piazza del Popolo, that you would, if you're coming from the north, you'd enter. And he put an obelisk there and he beautified the church of Santa Maria del Popolo. And then there's a trident, there's three streets. And this one leads you down to uh, Araceli, which is the uh, uh, Franciscan church there. Um, here's the Spanish steps, there's a street that leads you to that, he puts an obelisk there. Um, uh, some of these cross streets uh, takes you up to Santa Maria Maggiore and over to uh, the obelisk at, uh, um, I can't even read this, uh, St. John Lateran, Santa Croce, Saint, Saint, Saint um, yeah, whatever that says. Um, <coughs> but you see what he was doing? He was creating streets to make it easier for the pilgrims and their tour buses to get around. <laughs> and uh, the obelisks were meant to give you signs. The obelisks were meant to give you signs of, of where you're going. You see an obelisk? That's probably an important spot. Let's head for that next obelisk, honey. Come on. Um, and um, so this is, this is the first one, which is one of the largest. And of course, the obelisk, this is the obelisk that the Pope saw as having witnessed the martyrdom of St. Peter in the uh, Stadium of Nero. And so he moved it from the Stadium of Nero, where Peter would have been uh, uh, put to death, and brought it to the front of the church. Um, and it was a great undertaking. And uh, his architect, um, Fontana, did a fantastic job. And I think they had 800 men working on it with ropes and horses and things like that. Just 800, about less than half of the college campus could raise one of these. And um, once they did that one, it was no sweat. And they, they, he, he raised a lot of other obelisks, even taller ones. Um, and of course, there's kind of a conversion of these you know, obelisks, too. That's, he, he rededicates them and the, and the columns, too. Um, now, these works did not simply improve the appearance of the city. They were the outward and visible signs of more, Rome's moral and spiritual reform. They were the means by which the Pope fulfilled his desire to fill Rome with the most holy testimonies of our redemption. Sixtus wanted the sight of the works to animate the sacred images that he carried within his heart. And he especially rejoiced if ever the same thing should happen to us when we traveled throughout the city. Now, there's another interesting story. I'd like you to go to Venice because we just were in, uh, uh, you know, the big cities, uh, Florence, and you need to go tour of, you know, CC, Florence, Rome, and Venice. So now we're going to Venice. Um, and this great plague in 1570 uh, that killed uh, a large percentage of the populace and the um, fathers of Venice said, uh, prayed a prayer and said that if the plague would end, they would build a temple to the Redeemer. And so this is the temple of the Redeemer that Andrea Palladio designed for them and was built in the 1570s. And they decided to place it in the canal of the Zudeca cross from the main part of Venice so that you could always see the Redeemer Church. And on the feast day, they did this amazing thing that they had to walk in procession, pilgrimage to the Redeemer. And they would build this bridge, which is a huge bridge, on top of boats. And so if you go there in July on this weekend to this day, you will see a temporary bridge uh, where you can walk from one big island to another big island of Venice. And normally 
uh, you, you can't get there except by boat. So the, the Redentory, the Redeemer Church, uh, which is uh, in honor of Christ saving us from the plague. And it's a very interesting building. It has a simplicity. It was given into the care of the Franciscans. Um, it's a very simple uh, in its color. It's complex in its architecture. Uh, it's a very sophisticated Renaissance building using uh, the classical language. And it was designed for three things. The nave for the laity, the sanctuary for the priests and the nobility, and the final space behind that screen of columns there is where the Franciscans uh, had their choir. And you can imagine that though the church is quite elegant and grand, their choir, though large, is very simple. So you have a very simple Franciscan choir, but the other places are meant to foster devotion to the Redeemer. And they're meant to be for us and for the no nobility. Now this is a very interesting building. Uh, notice the high altar. High altar with, on top, uh, beautiful crucifix, um, apostles down below, and on the front of the altar, I guess you can't see it because of all those beautiful uh, uh, um, decoration, is an image of the Passion of Christ. So that's what you have to know. Passion of Christ on the front of the altar, um, carrying the cross via crucis, and then above is the crucifix. Now, there's a reason I'm telling you that. You say, so what? That's what all churches should have. That's what all altars that are Franciscan should have, and, you know, big whoop. Well, there's an interesting story here because the church itself is designed as a pilgrimage where it has six side chapels and the main high altar, and they're all designed to tell that story. Remember, you walked across a bridge to get here, right? You walked across a bridge, and I can't even read these, but um, you walked across a bridge to get here, and if you start on the right, um, you have the baptism, you have the, oh my goodness, no, you have the um, birth, you have the baptism, you have the um, scourging, you have the altar here, which should be there, but the altar's there, uh, which is the, the passion and death of Christ, and then after that you have the uh, internment or, or burial, and then you have the uh, resurrection and the, um, yeah, what do you have? Good. So the chapels and the design of the church are telling the story of the Redeemer of our redemption. This is fascinating, and that actually the chapels are dedicated to different mysteries of our redemption. Now, wouldn't that make an amazing Franciscan chapel at this amazing Franciscan university? So, Franciscan architecture is evangelistic, it's about pilgrimage, and it's, this one will surprise you, Franciscan architecture is Eucharistic. And so I'd like to start with the miracle at Greccio. Francis's devotion to the Incarnation as expressed in the Eucharist. Because here at the crib at Greccio, Francis reenacts the birth of the Savior with a true nativity manger and animals, over which he places an altar where Mass is celebrated. Mass is celebrated over the manger. Mass is celebrated over the spot where Christ comes into the world. Mass is celebrated and Christ is born in the Mass. A liturgical drama, and here we've got it for the theater people here, 
a liturgical drama so that all present could share and feel as though they were witnesses to the mystery of Christ's birth. Gretcho was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem, which all of our churches, but particularly Franciscan churches, should strive to be a new Bethlehem. Later, the place on which the manger had stood was made sacred by a temple of the Lord, with a permanent altar was built. And you see in the painting, uh, both the Kino, uh, and, and even uh, you see the pulpit and the rood screen and the cross. And um, church was built so that where once the animals where once the animals had eaten the hay, there in the future men would eat unto health of soul and body, the flesh of the lamb, without blemish and without spot, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in highest and ineffable love gave himself to us. Franciscans are some of the earliest promoters of beautiful public tabernacles. And this is a great example of a wall tabernacle uh, in uh, Santa Croce, uh, the Holy Cross Church in Florence, Franciscan Church. They were promoters of beautiful tabernacles. And again, we remember uh, what uh, Solano writes about um, Francis. He burned with love for the sacrament of our Lord's body with all his heart and was lost in wonder at the thought of such condescending love. He received Holy Communion often and so devotedly that he roused others to devotion too. The presence of the Immaculate Lamb used to take him out of himself so that he was often lost in ecstasy. So the next time that someone says, why are you focusing so much on the tabernacle? Go and feed the poor. Remind them that St. Francis did both. I'd like to bring up this great chapel in Rome, which is one of my favorites. Uh, do you know this place? This is the Sistine Chapel, the other Sistine Chapel, at Santa Maria Maggiore, which of course is the greatest uh, Marian church uh, considered in the world. And this too was built by Pope Sixtus V, who redesigned Rome. The chapel is a place where he and his saintly predecessor, Pius V, who was a Jesuit, I think, Pius V? What? What? He and his saintly predecessor, the Dominican Pius, the Saint Pius V, were both buried in this um, chapel. And the focus, the, the two popes, you can't tell, but the two popes are looking at the center, which is the altar, and the tabernacle. Uh, and the tabernacle is this huge tabernacle temple, which is a miniature of the temple that you're in, the chapel that you're in, which is bigger than most churches in America. And the tabernacle over the altar, placed on the altar, this is the innovation of uh, the late 1400s uh, that the Franciscans and others supported. The tabernacle on angels is held aloft as if it's floating uh, with saints and images of the passion on the sides of the tabernacle. It's great bronze tabernacle. Um, the angels are about five feet tall and the altar is placed over the holy spot. Now we're not in Jerusalem and we're not in Bethlehem, but the Franciscan Pope also 
acknowledges the Franciscan emphasis on the holy spot and the holy relic. So, and he wants to make a theological connection here. So the tabernacle where Christ is present over the altar where he gives his life for us is over the relics to his nativity, a piece of Bethlehem. Because one of the relics of, of Santa Maria Maggiore is hay from the, cha the cave of the nativity and also stones. So here we have again a piece of Bethlehem in Rome, the new Holy Land, the new Jerusalem. This is the dome, which isn't too shabby. <laughs> and you could do a whole lecture on this chapel. There's an amazing book on it, actually, the Sistine and Pauline chapels, Santa Maria Maggiore, that I highly recommend. It's a very uh, rich theology. But again, the Sistine Chapel is a, this building is a book of theology, if you can read it, with the, the um, emphasis on the Eucharist, the emphasis on Our Lady, the emphasis, it has the body of St. Jerome, who of course was the one who built the altar over the place where Christ was born at the Church of the Nativity. And he wanted to be born there, and his body was moved out of Bethlehem at a later date, and the Pope put it back in Bethlehem, as it were, here. St. Jerome is the one who, who early takes that idea of the altar over the spot of Christ's birth. Uh, and there's a very rich history here, but suffices to say that um, it's Eucharistic. And um, of course, the place of the nativity connects us to what we've already talked before with Greccio and the Presepio, which is the Italian name for the crash. Um, which Francis invents and promotes. Um, but this piece of Bethlehem, this presepio, is the raison d'etre for erecting the chapel. Because why? It's the proof of Mary's divine maternity and of Christ's incarnation. Oh, to look upon the manger in which the Lord lay. The idea of the Franciscan meditative prayer is to enter into the event as an actor in a drama, singing with the angels and worshiping the infant with the shepherds. Immersion in the event draws us into its deeper archetypal significance and leads us to union with God. If we cannot make the physical journey to the Holy Land, we can at least imagine we are present at the events. Just as the ultimate goal of Francis at Greccio was the sacrament, partaking in the transubstantiated body of Christ at the altar that Francis placed on top of the manger. And Sixtus creates a permanent evocation of St. Francis's Greccio celebration. And this is one piece that's very interesting because the tradition of Christmas Mass at Santa Maria Maggiore was that one of the things that the the Pope would do was to bring the Blessed Sacrament down and place it in the manger. That's what we see here, this image of Sixtus receiving the Blessed Sacrament from the Virgin at the altar. 
And so the Franciscans were uh, great promoters of the Eucharist, of Eucharistic devotion, of the joining of the tabernacle to the altar, which in recent decades we've seen uh, 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 a, uh, an attack on. But again, the Franciscans were promoters of this. So we at Franciscans should take this seriously and rethink this idea. Um, this is a chapel named after your uh, science building. <laughs> so this, of course, is the mother church of the TORs in Rome. It's right next to the Roman Forum. Uh, it's been a church for a long time. Um, it's a converted building um, um, and uh, has these, mosaic, uh, these uh, magnificent mosaics where you see Peter and Paul uh, bringing Cosmos and Damien to meet uh, the Redeemer. And below them you see the 12 apostles, uh, the lambs, and many other saints. And then below that you see the most holy altar with its uh, beautiful image of Our Lady, the Madonna, and uh, the tabernacle. Again, all those things are very much connected in the theology of this Franciscan church and uh, might offer some inspiration for your new chapel. Um, the, uh, there is also a Franciscan emphasis on Eucharistic processions and um, uh, only in Ireland though. <coughs> That's a joke. Um, that was the best photo I could find. But um, uh, so St. Francis wrote a letter to the superiors of the Friars Minor and he said, when the priest is offering sacrifice at the altar or the blessed sacrament is being carried about, everyone should kneel down and give praise, glory, and honor to our Lord and God living and true. Again, the Poverello as a great promoter of Eucharistic adoration. Now the fourth principle, and I, there should be five or six, but we're running out of time. Uh, the fourth principle of Franciscan architecture is that it should be interesting. Should be okay. Should be nice. No, come on. Franciscan architecture should be beautiful. And let's start with the outside of that simple uh, temple uh, that is in honor uh, of Christ and his great son, uh, St. Francis in Assisi. And this simple building, but with a splendid elements. Stone for permanence, for beauty, um, with these beautifully carved columns of multiple colored marbles, these Gothic arches, the pinwheel, the, the, the wheels that are windows, iconography of Our Lady, um, and the saints and the four evangelists above. Um, there's a simplicity, but a beauty, and um, it doesn't look cheap. Um, the interior is soaring. The proportions are tall. It's vaulted with that, those colors and those, it's the heavens, isn't it? And these deep colored frescoes are you surprised when I tell you that the Franciscans were the patrons of some of the finest artists and architects in our history? I said that before, didn't I? 
They really have been. It would be an amazing book to do a book on Franciscan architecture, and then you could do another book on Franciscan art, maybe three books on Franciscan art, and it could just be the great stuff. Just great stuff. And you'd have multiple books. I'm not talking about the mediocre stuff or the nice stuff. I'm talking about the great stuff. And here inside San Francesco, we have Cimabue and Giotto, two of the great medieval early Renaissance painters. There's a, there's a sophisticated iconographic program and one of the interpretations is that Francis is seen as the first major poet to write in Italian. And his feeling for humanity and for nature is regarded as a formative influence on this new realistic art of Giotto and his followers, and hence on the whole course of Western art. In the Basilica, we see the four evangelists with their cities. We see the life of the Virgin and the apocalypse the life of St. Peter and Paul. And you'll find this actually in a lot of Franciscan churches, an emphasis on Peter and Paul. Why? Why Peter and Paul? What's the big deal? Francis and Anthony of Padua, who correspond in this church with Peter and Paul. So you have the Peter and Paul, founders of Rome, and then you have Francis and Anthony, the founders of Assisi and of Franciscan life. The, we think that the altar in the transept was dedicated to the apostles and the saints in homage of Peter and Paul. And though I know it was illegal according to canon law, there were two images of the crucifixion. It was a joke. Um, and then I want you to, I want you to close, go a little closer though in detail because this is the architecture close up. When you look at this, you see a lot of color and a lot of beautiful images, and you say, that's kind of neat. Those are paintings. I like that. It's very simple and so forth. The architecture doesn't distract me. And this is the architecture. Beautifully hand-carved. Um, we have some machines, too, but um, marble, uh, the marble of Assisi uh, with these beautiful capitals, these, these faces, these heads, and um, um, all elegantly designed and built. And just like Francis, who was a Francese, we think that the architect was from the north, from France. And then we see the magnificent freestanding altar in the lower church. <coughs> and the, uh, the, the vestment on the left that Francis wore and the patchwork that it became, and obviously he really cared about how he looked and uh, didn't like to recycle things. Um, but the, though, though not sumptuous, though not decadent, and there was criticism of that, but the elegant uh, wearing of vestments for mass, that the way, you, the way you dress as a friar is one thing, the way you vest for mass when you're altar Christus, or in this case, Francis as a deacon, uh, is not, um, is different. You take on um, Christ. And uh, one of the other great basilicas of Italy is Il Santo, um, the Basilica of San Antonio, which is one of the amazing pilgrimage places where they have the body of San Antonio, and this great uh, medieval building, but combined with that wonderful Byzantine tradition of uh, five domes. And of course, that comes from Venice, which is up the street. So again, that idea that there is 
There are some universals. There are also some local influences that we see. This doesn't exactly look like a CC, but it connects us to a CC, and it's very beautiful. Um, on another note, uh, the great chapter house of the Franciscans of Santa Croce in Florence uh, build this chapter house, and in the late 1400, mid 1400s, with the great architect Brunelleschi, and uh, this is a geometric wonder. This is a building that is all about proportion. It's very cerebral. Um, the dome hovers above the holy place. The friars sit around the walls. Uh, though it's a chapter house, there's a beautiful altar. Um, and the four evangelists look down upon us. The dome floats like an umbrella above our heads. And there's 12 circles of here of somebody or other. I don't remember, 12 somethings, 12. <laughs> Yeah, archangels or something. <clears throat> the Potsy Chapel, and you can see the same motifs brought out to the facade. And so it's, it's different than a CC, but there's an elegance, uh, there's a beauty uh, in this architecture as well. And this is, did you think of, do you think of this as a Franciscan room? Who built this room? It's called the Sistine Chapel, so who might have built it? I don't know. So this is Sixtus IV, who was a Franciscan and who built the chapel. And Sixtus IV, in true Franciscan manner, um, had a great devotion to Our Lady. And though St. Peter's was being worked on at the time, he spent no money and time on St. Peter's and focused his attention on building, I think, five different Marian projects in Rome. New churches, uh, restoration of churches, they were all Marian and, um, and all stupendous buildings. Santa Maria della Pace, Santa Maria del Popolo. And, and he was concerned also about pilgrimage. So one of the things he did was build this very simple chapel. Now, get, get rid of all that painting for a minute. This is a simple room. It's tall. It's handsome. It's like we talked about with the early uh, uh, Franciscan architecture. The rooms can be simple, but then they become canvases for great art to tell the story of Peter and of Christ, and then above, the story of creation. And so Sixtus IV builds the church, and his nephew, the great Julius II, hires one of the greatest artists of all time, to do the ceiling. And it's Julius II who continues the work of his uncle. And what is this chapel dedicated to? It's Franciscan. What did they promote, the Franciscans, in the medieval and the Renaissance period and up through the 19th century and the 20th century? What were they the great promoters of? Starts with an I. This is the chapel of the Immaculate Conception. So here we have uh, Sixtus IV building the chapel and beginning the artwork. Julius II, uh, his nephew, doing the ceiling, and it's dedicated to the Immaculate Conception. And um, do you ever think about this building as a Franciscan building? Well, that same fellow who hired Michelangelo to do the ceiling 
hired another fellow named Bramante to do the definitive plan for St. Peter's. And of course, none of this was, Rome wasn't built in a day, neither was St. Peter's. Um, but Bramante did the definitive plan for St. Peter's. And what we have today is very much beholden to his design, although many other great architects had their hand in it. And this is Julius II's work to do the new St. Peter's. And he wanted to make, um, he wanted to help make Rome, the new Jerusalem, uh, and to inspire the faithful. And so St. Peter's needed to be the greatest, the Prince of the Apostles, needed to be the greatest uh, church in all of Christendom. And so he, he did this serious work of rebuilding or beginning the rebuilding of St. Peter's with Bramante. And they hired a few other nice guys to finish it, like Bernini and Michelangelo. Forget about them. And, um, but again, this also we owe to a Franciscan pope. He does the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He makes St. Peter's happen. Um, and like his uncle, he, he certainly had a high regard for himself, as all Franciscans should. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. But he had a high regard of himself. And he wanted to be like the popes, to be buried there with a beautiful tomb. But this is what you really should focus on, is that um, the altar is over the tomb of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles. And in the apse, in the apse of Julius's church is placed what? In the apse of the church for Julius's design, he wanted a, an altar to whom? the Immaculate Conception. Another uh, simple, elegant uh, Franciscan church. This one, interesting because it's uh, this great counter-reformation idea, or not really counter-reformation, it's going to become a counter-reformation idea, of a nave with outside aisles, but a nave with chapels, like those early churches, the chapels where various benefactors can help build the church by dedicating different saints. Also, like the Rey Dantore, the Redeemer in Venice, where the chapels can also tell a story. Uh, the beauty, the simple beauty of um, San Salvatore, it's also called San Francesco al Monte, out north, uh, 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 above Florence. And this building had a great influence. Uh, it influenced uh, much later San Francesco della Vigna in Venice, also very simple and elegant. Uh, with uh, great uh, side chapels, um, splendid high altar, but simple places for the friars. The friars' choir, much simpler. See the facade by uh, Palladio, the, the greatest architect of the time. So they didn't hire the second-rate guys. They hired the best at times. Uh, I don't know, was Giotto the best at his time? Bramante, Michelangelo, they were pretty good. Um, and, um, oh, can you see that? Is it too light up there? Yeah, sorry, it's washed out. But this is a, this is a great Franciscan church in, um, in uh, I don't think I can pronounce it, in uh, Poland. And um, it's called Dobrzomny. And um, <laughs> it's a great Franciscan church in Poland. I should have brought more of this because um, most people in America know that Franciscanism, uh, there's no such thing as Baroque Franciscan churches, right? You know that, that's a fact. Well, I should have brought more like this, but there's plenty of Baroque 
Franciscan churches um, done outside of Steubenville. <laughs> Especially in Slavic countries and German countries and crazy places like that. What do they know? All right. So Franciscan architecture is, um, is uh, what is it? Evangelistic. It's an architecture of pilgrimage. It's Eucharistic and it's beautiful. Um, those four things. So now before I, uh, now for something completely different, but not totally, um, a couple of things that I worked on for your fun. Um, this, uh, we did actually have the pleasure and I'm working on one or two right now, campus chapels. And I have to say it's a great, uh, great uh, project to work on a campus chapel and I uh, am very excited for you and for Father Sean and the architects to do uh, something much, the, the most beautiful new chapel in America. And I know, I know you will. But this chapel was for a college, uh, Thomas Aquinas in California, and I was asked to do something that was inspired by the Franciscan tradition, but since they're a great books program, they said, could you also make it Romanesque? We'd like some medieval stuff, uh, the best of the Baroque, and maybe throw in a pinch of the Renaissance. <laughs> and I said, no problem. That's done all the time. Um, and the other thing they asked me to do, which is interesting, is they said, um, do a church that would be the kind of church that um, the, uh, the mission, missionaries would have built if they had had the money. <laughs> in a sense, the, the kind of work that they saw in Spain or in, in New Spain and Mexico and Guatemala and so on. So that was the goal, was to do a great books church and to uh, a great books church. And um, um, their two great teachers there are, as you know, Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. So they greet you on the outside with their symbols. Uh, we have a dedication to Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. Um, we have a beautiful window up here, a pediment that has the coat of arms of the school. And we have the reading from Revelations 12 about the woman clothed with the sun and 12 stars around her head. And then on top, I don't know if you can see it, but there's Our Lady on top in marble and uh, a three-tiered tower for the Trinity. This was our sketch for the interior and that was uh, what it turned out to be. And uh, Again, they, did, they asked for easy things here um, on budget, on time. Uh, they said, um, took about 10 years. Um, and they asked for, uh, they wanted columns and arches. Mm. And they wanted cruciform. And they wanted a dome. Now, believe it or not, that has hardly ever been done until the, the 19th, 20th century in America. This is not a traditional thing. So take all your favorite traditional ideas and put them together in a pot, and that's what you ask your architect to do. <laughs> so I love that. It was a great challenge, like the great books approach. 
uh, to include everything great in one building. But at any rate, it's a cruciform church with a dome over the center, but columns and arches. That was the sticking point. And so that's why we have the vaulted ceiling, which connects you to the dome, and it's supposed to lead you to the important spot. Um, and uh, uh, the, yes, yes, uh, the columns are made out of marble. Uh, they're about 15 feet tall, there's about 24 of them. And there are 80 uh, pilasters out of marble, 15 tall, and there's, there's, uh, I'm sure there's some significance in the numbers there. Um, this is the Holy Father who began the project. Who's that? John Paul the Great was the Pope when we started the project. And when we finished the project, I don't know if I have a picture of it, but we had another Pope, uh, Benedict XVI, and that's who got the coat of arms there. But it's very simple. This is a philosopher's church. These are men and women that think a lot. <laughs> it's not a lot of color, not a lot of iconography, and um, just kind of pure geometry and so on. Uh, but, um, and I'm sorry, this is not a better shot, but of course the altar, the tabernacle, uh, the baldacchino, and I'll show you a little bit of close-ups of some things. There's the baldacchino, the altar rail um, out of marble, um, setting the most important place off, the angels above, the angels of the passion. Kind of an innovative idea to have the crucifix on top of the baldacchino, so that would be proclaimed. Uh, then you see some side altars which had particular significance to the college, the Annunciation, uh, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas fighting off temptation in the guise of a, uh, a, a young and uh, scantily clothed woman, and um, some other saints. And let's see, what else is there to say? You see the Holy Spirit on the Baldacchino. And it is a bronze Baldacchino, but please don't tell me it's like St. Peter's. This is like uh, just a little... A little silly remembrance of it. But it's very Roman and the church is dedicated to Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity and so we got that image uh, again of the Holy Spirit throughout the uh, interior in these capitals. Um, now this is pretty nice too. Oh come on. Um, St. <laughs> Teresa Church built in the high point of church architecture in the 1980s. Um, <laughs> not uh, particularly beloved, but certainly function, I'm sure it was built on budget on time. <laughs> any rate, Father uh, Reynolds uh, wanted to beautify it, didn't have a lot of money, we spent about a half a million dollars, and he says, we can't do the whole church, plus the whole church should probably be torn down. So let's not do the whole church, but let's fix up the important spot, you know, the confessional. And what Father explained was that when people asked him, well, it sure doesn't go with the existing building, does it? He says, no, thank goodness. <laughs> he says, this is what you have to know. This is the ancient church which we, ex archaeologists excavated and they discovered and that wooden thing, that's just keeping, that's just protecting it. <laughs> so, this is St. Joseph Cathedral in Sioux Falls, which was recently finished. Um, it has had, it was never completed in the 20s when it was supposed to be. In the 40s, they put in this nice baldacchino, but I don't know if you can tell, but it was renovated, renovated, renovated. They got rid of the chandeliers, they painted it all white, 
You, then they put in, we all love stained glass, but they put in the stained glass so you couldn't see a thing. And um, the uh, pulpit disappeared. This is actually the altar. It's, there's the main aisle, and the altar's off to the right. They couldn't get it in the right spot. That's the ambo, and the bishop's chair is somewhere back there. And of course, they have some nice banners. <laughs> but you really can't see the important stuff, which is there. There's some actually beautiful things that the original architect Masquerade did and the original bishop, and you couldn't see it. So we were asked to uh, renovate this church in a way that the original bishop and architect would have known, and so we proposed this, paint, color, marbleizing, um, and putting an ambo back in a bishop's cathedra. Uh, we figured out where the center of the aisle was and put the altar there. <laughs> that was actually very hard to do. Um, the chandeliers, believe it or not, were about eight feet tall, six feet in diameter, and they had thrown them in the trash in the 50s. Um, the barbarians did not wait till Vatican II to get to this church. And um, the, uh, so anyway, we had to reconstruct those from photographs. And um, um, one of the things, let's see, do I have another photo of this? Yeah. One of the things that people of a certain generation were very worried about was the altar rail. They were scared to death about putting the altar rail back. And when it was all done, uh, we didn't hear any complaints because really it's a minor part of it all. Um, but a new floor, a new sanctuary, a uh, new high altar, which I don't have a better photo of, I'm sorry, with a crucifix, uh, angels on the baldacchino. And, and the, image, the, the images that were here, uh, I guess you can't see it too well, but that is an image of, it's St. Joe. So what's the great, what's perhaps maybe one of the two greatest events of St. Joseph's life? And that Christ and his mother were there too? <laughs> What's that event? The Nativity, good, yeah. So this is a Nativity church, it's a Christmas church. And so the image above the altar is the Nativity, so we had that painted, you can see it now. Uh, you can never tell what was up here, there's angels. And then there's actually 10 rondelles. I made a joke about the 12 rondelles in the other, um, the other chapel, uh, this is 12, this is 10 rondelles, and I didn't mean the pop group in Detroit from the 50s, uh, the rondelles, but this is interesting. So they had 10 rondelles, so they actually fit 12 apostles in there, so they, two of them are kind of um, Siamese twins. Um, but anyway, we painted the columns, uh, uh, faux marble, and the, uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, and you can see this, and, uh, Stations of the Cross. Oh, there's the ambo in marble with a sounding board in the Holy Spirit. And you see the Baldacchino in marble and the marble columns in the gold. And it does have uh, Eucharistic um, symbolism and the nails and the thorns, crown of thorns, and so on. Uh, and the flowers that represent the, um, the passion of our Lord are up in the detail uh, where conveniently you can't see them. <coughs> and that's the bishop's throne. Uh, and so this is actually a creative restoration. It was never like this, but it was meant to be done in a way that people would think it always was. That is, it's seamless. It fits. Uh, it's what the original architect might have done if he were me and my age in 2011. <laughs> so I, I, that's what we were supposed to do, and I don't know. We'll leave it to uh, future to decide, but um, okay. 
And then uh, another project that we worked on with uh, uh, then uh, now Cardinal Burke, uh, a shrine to Our Lady of Guadalupe in his uh, hometown of uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin. And he always wanted to build a shrine to Our Lady. And originally it was Our Lady of, I forget, what's, what's something really big? I think it was Fatima. Was it Lourdes or Fatima? And he had that, and then he made the mistake of going to Mexico City. <laughs> and he fell in love with Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, the patroness of the Americas. And he also made the mistake of hiring me. And so we did this church on a hill. Uh, it's actually on a hill, kind of like a light on a hill, like your campus, and um, side of a hill. And it's a, st it's a rough, simple exterior with beautiful stone detailing and a piazza in front. Um, and um, uh, and you have to, it's a pilgrimage site. You have to walk up to it and, um, and uh, pray as you go. And there are shrines as you go up. And it's, if you haven't been there, has anybody ever been there? Um, if you, if it's a really nice place to go in like February, no, um, <laughs> but it's a really nice place to go other times of the year. And, um, at the, as good pilgrimage sites at the end of you go up to the church, you go to confession. If you're like from, from Franciscan university and then, um, you come back down or you go to mass, then you come back down. And of course there's a good Catholic place. Then you eat lunch <laughs> at a very nice uh, restaurant. So that's, uh, our lady of Guadalupe. That's the interior. Uh, quite different than uh, California, much more. This is not a philosopher's church. This is a church for maybe the theologians or maybe for the little old ladies and little old men. This is for everybody. And it has uh, the story of Our Lady in the stained glass. It has the symbols from the litany of Loretto. It has, um, uh, it has like 12 side chapels. I don't know why you need 12, but anyway. Um, and we were fortunate to be able to work with great uh, artists from all over the world to do this and great craftsmen. And it's true, you can't build it like this anymore. Believe them, they're right. You cannot build this anymore. It's not allowed. Um, <laughs> we have a mosaic of the sacred image of the tilma there. It's a mosaic made by the Vatican Mosaic Shop and um, a great ambo and there is a bishop's throne there and so on. So that's not correct, sorry. Uh, this is Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, not too shabby dome. And there's two domes. And, oh, here we go. The four, uh, the four images under the dome are not the typical four evangelists. That's one good way to do it. But these are four doctors of the church who are particularly Marian in their devotion. And should you have the opportunity to do four or do a dome, or something like that, again, a great idea for Franciscan University would be an iconography that might be specific to your chapel, to the, great for the four great doctors of the Franciscan uh, order, or something like that. Um, kind of a neat idea. Um, and then uh, the dome has these, is blue with the stars, and this is the day on which Our Lady appeared in December to St. Juan Diego. And this is what the stars would have looked like in the sky in 1531. I knew you would know that. <laughs> um, and then just for fun, this is another little tiny project that we just did for uh, three quarters of a million dollars. Um, a very nice uh, 1960 uh, Carmelite chapel. And uh, it looks exactly the way it did in 1960. <laughs> and um, 
they, the sisters wanted to fix it up. They said it was time to freshen it up. And there wasn't a whole lot we could do. You, have, you were limited by the building, but they, uh, we, we wanted to give, uh, 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 to bring back some beauty and some elegance and um, more prominent tabernacle and shrines and so on. And also they had this great idea about using wood from they're up in Traverse City from Michigan and supporting the local economy uh, as well as they wanted to support the economy of Italian marble makers. <laughs> so um, the four principles of Franciscan architecture. Um, it's been an honor to be here tonight and we'll close with this great image of the Immaculate Conception in honor of the Franciscans who promoted her cause and also the great popes who built in her honor and inspiration to all of you in your new and beautiful chapel. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.